Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 254. Well, we come from Purim, and we prepare now, Mismach Geula Legeula, the redemption of Purim, that comes in a consecutive following month of Nisan, the Geula, which will be in a little less than a month of Pesach. These are not just terms and ideas, and it's not just in order to schedule Purim, not in the first order in this leap year, but in the second one, but it also comes to teach us a personal lesson. And that is that the whole purpose of existence is to redeem ourselves and the world from the shackles, the constraints, the limitations, the concealments, that block us from being the healthiest we can be and from the world being the healthiest it can be. So Purim is a gu'ula of its own particular personality and immediately empowers us to reach, to reach the ultimate gu'ula, which is the gu'ula of Pesach. In this month of Nisan that will soon be arriving, we will <coughs> is the month when we're told also the final redemption. So every form of redemption leads to another form of redemption. And in the cat language that we can use in our personal lives, redemption in healing, in growing, in rise, rising to higher, uh, to greater heights and to broader horizons. So this week, in this uh, cycle, and the Jewish calendar is fascinating in its structure. So part of the structure is that that there are four special parshas that we read, beginning from when? From when we bless the month of Adar. So then we read the parasha called Shkolim, the story about collecting shekel, the half, the half shekel, the half coin, from everybody, from all the Jewish people. Everyone contributed the same amount in order with which they bought the offerings, the public offerings in the Beis Amikdash. In the time of the Mishkan, in the portable sanctuary, from these half shekels, they made the adonim, they made the foundational um, elements that kept the pillars of the Mishkan standing. Then comes the next parsha, which is always read before Purim. This is an additional parsha to the regular portion, and that's the parsha of Zohar that was read last week, always before Purim. Zohar is to remember what Amalek did. He attacked the Jews as they left Egypt. Then, um, depending on the schedule of the years, sometimes you skip a week and there's no special Pasha read, like in this year, in Pasha Tzav. But then comes the, which was yesterday, the next Shabbos will be Pasha Poro. There we read about the red heifer purifying from death, from the impurity of death. And the final of the four Pashas will be Parshas HaChedesh, which is either read the, month, the Shabbos that blesses the month of Nisan, or when it's Rosh Chedesh Nisan Shabbos, as it will be this year. So we'll speak about that when that comes. But this sequence is, has both, there's a practical reason of this sequence, but it also has personal and profound psychological and emotional lessons in the spirit of Chesidus Applied. So I'm going to speak, focus obviously on this week's Pasha Parah, 
as well as Parsha Shmini, which is the regular cycle, the chapter that we read. And all this, of course, is due to the fact that it's a leap year, as I mentioned. So therefore, everything is like later in the year because there's an extra other. So the Parshas that we connect to these weeks, these four special Parshas, generally when there's no leap year, are usually the Parshas at the end, well, always the Parshas, the chapters at the end of the book of Exodus. And in our case, it's already going into the book of Aikra of Leviticus. So what's the, re- the, the logic of, the stru- of these four chapters? Because as we prepare and conclude the year, and we're talking about the lunar year, and begin Chedesh Adishin, which is the month of Nisan, the Geula, when the Jews left Egypt, and every year we recreate that. So there's a process. The first step is that you have to bring Shkola, and with that, all offerings can be purchased. Then comes Zohar, you have to eliminate any of the impediments and enemies that block us from growing and from achieving and bringing our offerings and the temple and the Beis Amikdash. Then comes number three, Parsha Para, purification, because you can't bring the the Chedesh, the Karban Pesach, which will be brought on the 15th of Nisan in the times of the temple, unless you're pure. And then comes the actual Parsha Chedesh, which leads us, as God tells Moshe Rabbeinu in the Chumash, that in Parsha Boy, that this is the month, this new month, in two weeks from now, the month of redemption when the Jewish people will leave Mitzrayim. So that's the process in basically the halachic reason, the legal reason. What is its personal application? A personal application is, the first thing is, you need to bring yourself and donate and commit and contribute to building a sanctuary in your personal life, within each one of us, and in the general world. And how do we do that? By contributing with money. Money, as the Alter Rebbe explains in chapter 37 in Tanya, captures and encompasses the entire being of a person. It's soul energy. Because with money, you can purchase anything, and it reflects in our minds and in our hearts all the effort, our time, our ingenuity, our connections. That's what money reflects. So when you give of your money, it means you've shown up. You're part of, you're not just a bystander, but a spectator. You're part of the process. Then you have to eliminate any type of doubts, arrogance, and uh, apathy, which Amalek represents. Then comes purification. You have to be pure. You have to purify your life. You have to refine yourself. This is para. And then that leads us to hachedish, to renewal. You want to experience renewal? You need these first three steps, and in that order. So what is the significance of para? It's not just purity, it's also purity, even from death. Now there's physical death, God forbid, which in the time of the temple, at the time of, starting even the time of the Torah, God said, how do you purify from death? You take the red heifer, as we'll read in this chapter, this coming week, and you take its ash, and you mix it with mayim chayim, living water, meaning spring water, and that you sprinkle on someone who is affected by the toxins of death, and that's a purifier. What does it mean, naveda and ruchnius? Ruchnius, we all, unfortunately, sometimes kiss the kiss of death. Death is when we disconnect from our source of life. 
When is a person truly alive? Not just biologically alive, not just breathing and functioning and surviving. You're truly alive when you're connected to the purpose of your being, when you're realizing and fulfilling the mission of your life. And that means the divine mission which God gave you. That is a truly pers- a person that's truly alive. When we wander away from that mission, when we are distracted, when we're seduced by the different temptations that take us away and misalign us from our purpose, that's a form of a death, a mini-death. But not all is lost. There's ways to purify. When you combine the ash, which is gvura, with the water, which is chesed, as the Alter Rebbe explains in Parsha Chukas and the Kutetera, you bring together rotze and shuv. Rotze is a yearning, like a fire that yearns and reaches upward. Shuv is like water that descends below. You join them, that's the, that's the fabric of life itself, the pulsating energy of exhale and inhale, of contraction and expansion, of tension and resolution. Because when you don't have a rotze, you're not seeking transcendence and some higher thing some higher reality, then you succumb to what? To your own comfort zone and to your own needs, which is a form of death. So how do you purify from that? That you have to reconnect. It's like someone, for example, that only inhales and does not exhale. A hard God forbid, that just contracts and does not expand. You need both. And that's what creates the living organism of all of life, the breath of life, the pulsating energy. And in simple terms, that means that every one of us has to, on a constant basis, always have something we aspire to, to reach greater heights in our connection with God, in our connection with our purpose, in fulfilling what we are destined to do in being a better person. No matter how good you are, you're always growing. But that has to also be reintegrated and internalized, which is the shuv, where you internalize and integrate it into your life. And that's the constant balance of the heart, of the breath, of life itself. That's part of it. And so that prepares us. You want a chidush? A chidush azalachem. A chidush from the word renewal. The new moon reflecting renewal in your life. Renewal is only possible when you have that pulsating energy. If there's anything blocking it, then life is compromised. If the blood is not flowing, if there's no proper tension, resolution, contraction, and expansion, the blood will not reach all parts of the body. As the Altarab explains in Agedah Sakedish, that for the flow to be complete, it needs to have a complete circulating flow, and that's a Ratzi Vashuv. <clears throat> What's the connection to Pasha Shmini? Shmini is the third Pasha chapter in the book of Vayikra, and of course, as Vayibayema Shmini means after the seven days of dedicating the temple which was really training period to train Aaron and his children to serve in the temple. Now is the day when the temple, the day that the temple actually was established and the first day of actual service. And what do you have? The sons of Aaron run into the temple without a shuv and they get burned, literally, and get consumed by a strange fire. As Chassidus explains, especially the Maimer of Achrei Meis Tofresh Memtes from the Rebbe Rashab, the Nodav and Aviyu, and their great yearning, as the Eir Achayim writes, the love, the aspiration, the yearning, the Gaguim, the great search for, for such, for higher spiritual states, 
without the containment and internalization, caused, unfortunately, their death. But on the other end, Shbiyemashmin is a great day. And even the Nadav and Aviyu, as Moshe tells Aaron, that Bekrevi HaKadosh, that when um, they, Hashem said that by, my close ones will sanctify me, I thought it would be you and I, and it was your children. They sanctified God's name. It was not done the right way, and later it's corrected in two chapters from now. And how you're supposed to how you're supposed to go into the Holy of Holies. But the, but the general concept was a sanctification. And then comes Shmini, the eighth day, as explained in Chassidus, is the day of transcendence. Seven is the cycle of life. And the eighth day is transcendence. The transcendence of making this world into a home for God. Making our lives and the world into a sanctuary for God. And that's when Meshur Rabbeinu said his prayers and that began launching the actual first time ever that God's presence was in a physical entity down on this earth. So it all comes together in our personal lives. It's about aligning ourselves to the, the Mishkan, the sanctuary, the tabernacle, the temple that each of us is meant to be. And that's when we are at our healthiest and at our best. And that's when we are fulfilling and realizing all our potential in the fullest possible way. So Chassidus applied. A healthy person means a person who's breathing, a person whose blood is flowing, not just the physical, but their entire system is breathing. We don't feel trapped, inhibited, fear, insecurity, doubts, but rather there's a flow to our lives, a flow that's driven by this pulsating energy that allows us to connect to something higher, internalize it, and then climb even higher. Like a ladder. You don't jump many rungs. You put up one foot on one rung, then the next foot, the next rung, and you, it's a constant process of growth and, re, and reaching greater and greater heights. With that, let us now go into a few questions. But let me first make a few announcements, beginning with number one announcement, and that is that um, we are almost finished evaluating the essays of the essay contest the fifth year, fifth annual My Life Applied Essay Contest, and we'll soon be giving more news. Great essays, I've seen some of them, most I haven't seen. The judges are judging them blindly, which means they don't know who wrote what. So it's done in a very objective way, in the most fair possible fashion, to really give everyone an equal chance to win. And it's really many essays, much more than previous years, so it's taking us a little more time than usual. Okay. Also, My Life Chassidus Applied, if you have not ever tuned into this program, I want to say this is an opportunity for you to ask any question you like. You go to MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife, and there's a forum, anonymous, confidential, to comment, to ask, to submit anything you wish. If you want to request something and a response, you have to give us your email address, because we can't trace who you are in the forum, which is, as I said, anonymous. With a, you also have a full array of resources at MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife, um, which is all the previous archived episodes, which you can download, podcast. Um, it's available in iTunes in many different formats at your convenience to listen when you like. It's also time-stamped in the YouTube version, 
Timestamp meaning you can just go straight to the topic that you're looking for. And finally, we survive on your support. This is a community-sponsored program. It's free. A lot of work goes into it, a lot of research. So please consider, especially in this auspicious time, when we go from Purim to Pesach, consider making a, a generous donation to MeaningfulLife.com slash sponsorship. You can also sponsor in honor or memory of a loved one a program or a series of programs. And it's deeply appreciated, and thank you for that. Okay, questions. First, some cross-reference with Shemini Ampara. Episodes 59, 109, 204, and 208. I've spoken about this topic. As I mentioned, these archives are all available at MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife. The first question about Trachgut Vedzangut, the famous expression popularized by the Rebbe that the Tzemach Tzedek told a Chosid who had a very serious situation, a health crisis with his child, and the Rebbe told the Tzemach Tzedek, said, Trachgut Vedzangut. When you think good, it will be good. Not just think good, but there's also a conclusion. It will be good. And the Rebbe has a famous sikha on Shmeis in volume, um, what volume is it? The volume 36, I believe. <clears throat> Shmeis that explains the concept of betochen and trust and what that means that actually opens up new channels and can change your reality. So we've talked about this a number of times. And here's another question that came in about how far do our thoughts affect our reality? Rabbi Jacobson. Been a big fan for years. My rabbi recommended that I reach out to you. I attend his shul in Fairlawn, and we learn chassidus together. I've been a student of betachen for years and cannot get my hands around this concept. Betachen is trust in God. If I desire to win the lottery or buy a new Ferrari, is this good? Quote, unquote. Is the, quote, is the good that I am thinking about exclusively that which will help my spiritual development? Or could it be the Ferrari that seems to contribute nothing or perhaps even detracts from my spiritual growth? But I want this good anyway. Another question. In one of your articles, you say that this practice, Targut Vedzangut, is not altering the universe, if I recall correctly. However, if there is good that I am wishing for in my subjective world, aren't I asking Hashem to grant this to me despite whatever else He had in store for me? Next. This is all a series of questions this fellow was writing. Under this concept, is the good that will result necessarily the good which was thought of? Is this good a revealed good, or am I reverting to an amuna, to faith, as opposed to a betachon trust, approach vis-a-vis the result. I would be grateful for any response you would be willing to provide. Thanks in advance, Kaltuf. So first let me refer you to several episodes where I've spoken about this. 146, 153, 39, 231, and 249. Not sure why 39 is not in that order. Okay. That's number one. Number two, regarding the questions you're asking, um, firstly, the Reb explains that, yes, it does change your universe. So I'm not sure you heard what I said correctly. However, in discussing it in contrast to what some people asked me about the law of attraction, the idea that was a few years ago, a big 
um, hype about a book called The Secret and so on. Where there, yes, you can imagine a Ferrari in your driveway and actually it will appear, not that moment, but you'll get it. Um, in Chassidus and in Teda, it's not so magical and pressing magic buttons. Targut Vezangut is yes, because God runs the show. And when you open up your channels of positivity and trusting, then yes, God responds and will give you what you're looking for. When you think negatively, you close those channels and you unfortunately don't allow the good energy or the good reality to manifest. So it's more than just faith. It actually changes reality. Just to give a small example, when you see people who are optimistic and and they, and they live, they have hope and trust and they have visitors that come see them even though they're sick in a hospital. That has actual psychosomatic effect even on their chemicals, on their immune, immune system. Someone else, God forbid, sits alone, isolated, no guests, no friends, no support. That has a physical effect. So you see right there that thoughts, good thoughts, actually create good results. However, we have to also take this with a certain type of mature approach. This isn't someone saying, you know, I'll think about a candy, I'll get a candy. What is good? Good is not always what we think is good. If somebody decides, I want something that I think is good, that's not necessarily what God thinks is good or what is really good for you. So that's the first qualification we have to make. That actually has to be good for you. So if an immature person or someone who just has some type of indulgent desire says, I'm going to think good, I'm going to concentrate, and, it's, and I'm going to get it. Who, that does not apply. That, never, that was never stated. Is it true that persistence and strong desire can lead to results? It could. But that's not the concept of Tragut Vedzangut. Tagud Vedzangut is we're focusing on something that's truly good, objectively good, what everyone would agree is good, not just what you think for that moment. So Ferrari, is that good for you? Not necessarily. To say you want to be successful in life, you want to have prosperity, be blessed with wealth, and, and therefore you think good as that blessing, yes, that will open up channels. But I wouldn't be focused on a particular type of car or a particular desire. That's one key point. The next point is often you'll get the good you need, not the good you want. That's a critical point. Sometimes we ask for something and because we're myopic and short-sighted, we don't really ask for what we should be asking. So that's another aspect of this. But overall, the answer is that if you desire to win something, you could, by thinking good, you open up those channels. Now win, what does win mean? As I said, it should be an objective good. Does that mean that you'll always fail if it's not one? I didn't say that, but I don't think the expression is referring to any particular desire a person has. It's referring to what goodness really is. In the original story, it was about a child that was sick, and Tragut was thinking positively that he'll be healed. And as, uh, and as in many of the letters of the Rebbe, referring to a situation where the good is a very positive result, health, um, prosperity, or getting over any crisis or challenge. And as I said, it does alter the universe, but remember, what means altering the universe? God created the universe. So the energy that goes in, the creative energy that's constantly being renewed, it's not such a surprise that if you access that engine room, you can actually get those wires to send energy to you and deliver the good that you're thinking of. I hope that was helpful. Please look at those other episodes or listen to them for more on this topic.
Next question. Is there an issue with listening to non-Jewish music with meaningful lyrics? So here again, I want to refer you to episodes 25, 33, 34, and 242. I discussed there most of this topic, but since the question comes in, even if it's sometimes a repeat, there's nothing wrong with addressing it again, but I want to most importantly refer you to where I spoke about it more elaborately. Briefly, in the context that you're asking, here we spoke about classical music and other types of music. Music is different than regular language. In general, a person has to be careful of everything that enters their lives. The famous Sifseik Koyin, Shach Alatera, in the Posek Sheftin Veshetrim Titm that's cited by the Tzemach Tzedek, and the Rebbe cites it also as well in many sikhs, that what does it mean in our personal lives that you have to appoint and designate Sheftim, judges, and Sheftim, law enforcement, police, Bechol Sha'arecha, in all your gates. What are the gates? The gates are the seven gates that every person has. Two eyes, two ears, two nostrils, and a mouth. And those gates are the gateways that interface between us and the world around us. So though it's vital to have them, because that's how you see, you hear, you taste, touch, and smell, but you have to also have gatekeepers to make sure that what enters your life is always with care. All people's lives, especially children. So even words, inappropriate words, inappropriate sights, inappropriate imp- um, uh, vibes, smells, taste, and touch, something we have to always be careful of. When it comes to music, is a particular care, because music is the language of the soul. Kulmus halev. If language, regular language, is the kulmus hamayach, which means the quill of the mind, music and song is the quill of the heart. Sometimes it says the quill of the soul. So when it's coming into your soul, as we see, music touches us in a much deeper place. And it's also coming from the composer of the music, from a deeper place within that composer. So there even more care has to be taken. And that's the issue here. It could be meaningful lyrics. It could be very good content. And we say, which means believe that there is wisdom among the nations. And we can learn from them. But you have to also remember the intention of the composer the context, and because it's meaningful, doesn't suddenly make it more kosher or holier or purer. It actually can be even worse in a way because it is meaningful. If it wasn't meaningful, it's not affecting you quite the same way. But for more details, I gave you the different um, episodes. And most importantly, talk to your mashpi about this or your rov, selacharav, to understand it better, because there are people who listen to music, we all listen to music, we all love music, and there are different types of music, and I think it's much more appropriate, I could give the general principles and ashkofa and perspective on it, but to really deal with this, especially if you're someone that listens, I'm assuming this is someone that is not just asking, and never listened to a song before, so I just want to be realistic as well, knowing that people listen to music of all sorts, including meaningful lyrics coming from necessarily, not necessarily Jewish sources, and um, <clears throat> that it's important to talk to someone more personally to really address it and see how you can monitor it and perhaps 
control it better and um, and have a more disciplined approach to listening to different types of music. I should add that I discussed in those other episodes the issue of music. Doesn't it could be it could come from Jewish sources, but not not necessarily the spirit of Jewish music. Remember, there's a nigunim as I discussed then that were composed by holy people like the Rabbeim. There's music composed by very high-level chassidim. And there's music that is more neutral. And then there's music, as you go down the spectrum, there's of the other level. So you have to remember that music itself, just because it's coming from a Jewish source, doesn't mean it's necessarily appropriate to always listen to. Or put it into the right context to know what, what music is of the highest level that you want that enters your heart and soul and purifies and cleanses and refines you and which music may be more neutral, and which is actually contaminating or even pollutes, pollutes your soul and your heart, your heart and soul. Okay. Next question. <clears throat> what should we be doing about the situation in Israel? So here again, a question that I've addressed a number of times, um, but Israel is, as we know, an ongoing challenge. Right now, I'm not sure why this question is relevant more now than ever. But listen, every day Israel is able to protect the Jews wherever they are, especially in a land, as the Rebbe more than once, but on an ongoing basis, explained and cited, a land that God watches over it with special providence from beginning of the year to the end of the year, all the, all the time. So we discussed this, and I'll just refer you to episodes 26, 29 through 33, 43, 85, and 173. But as I said, since the questions come in different times, and it's still relevant, and we all, wherever we are in the world, we pray toward Israel. So let me read the question and just give a few thoughts that complement and are more elaborated on in the episodes I just referred you to. Hi, Rep. Simon. I would like to make two points here. Number one, I would like to make a protest. I think Israel should take back Gaza and stay there and make a seder there, an order there. It's our land, and I think it's enough fearing what the world would say. And besides that, any normal country would do the same thing following the behavior from Gaza toward Israel. You may ask, what is this condemnation going to help? The answer is, as I heard the Rebbe once say, as is Tutvei Shreitman, when one is pained, one cries out. Point number two. In all situations throughout Jewish history, whenever Jews had a problem, they davened to Hashem, they prayed to God. Prayer seems to have always been the way the Jewish people dealt with problems. Some of us remember how the Rebbe at times of trouble in Israel instructed there should be a tainus shos. That means a half-day fast. A half-day fast. In later years, the Rebbe said we should redeem a fast day with money, meaning we should give the monetary value of a day's worth of food to charity. And at other times, the Rebbe said we should say extra tehillim, psalms. If I remember correctly, there were times the Rebbe specified which kapitlach, which chapters to say. As today is going into the month of the end of Adar and going to Nisan, it's definitely an appropriate time for prayer. I want to take this opportunity to wish you 
and your listeners all the blessings and a Chag Pesach Kosher V'Sameach. Okay. Uh, I don't know how much I have to comment on this, but I will say this. We can always do something. Israel, as I said, is the Holy Land, the Promised Land. We who don't live there physically pray toward that direction. We pray for Israel and toward Israel and we pray for the Gula Mitis Vashlema when we'll all be returned there. Now it's a, co- it's a community of Cain Yirbu, meaning should only continue to grow millions of Jews. So besides the general prayer for Israel, for the Jewish people there, be secure and safe and blessed in every possible way. So yes, prayer is one thing. When a Jew fulfills Torah and mitzvahs, they are also strengthening themselves and the entire organism called the Jewish people. As the Rebbe mentioned a number of times, even when, God forbid, there were wars being fought in Israel, physical wars, there's also the spiritual war. And that's the increase in Torah and mitzvahs, our commitment. The triad of Judaism is Am Yisrael, Eretz Yisrael, and Torah Yisrael. The nation of Israel, the land of Israel, and the Torah of Israel. In the Rebbe's words, Shleim Sa'am, Shleim Sa'Torah, Shleim Sa'Oretz. So, it's all interconnected. Israel is the center of the universe spiritually, the center of the Jewish people. And the Jewish people in Israel are intricately bound. That's why it says in Sfarim that every Jew has Dalar Amas, has actually a part in Israel, physical part. So we are not just a land out there, it's part of us, it's within us. The Rebbe himself probably thought more about Israel than he thought about any other part of the world. I would speak about it in every possible way to reinforce and strengthen Amuna, Betochen, the safest place on earth, and of course throughout Yiddishkeit. So there's much we can do. Keep it in mind and cognizant to pray for it. Every day we mention it to Israel now many times in our davening. It gives Dokka, including Tzidkas Israel, Tzidkas in Israel, as the Alter Rebbe writes in so many of the letters in Nigris Kedish, encouraging that support. And in every possible way to support our brethren there, knowing the value and the importance of Eretz Yisrael. And the ultimate prayer, that we will return to Zion in, with compassion, with mercy, in all in, good, in a good way. And as I said, I've referred more, uh, more references to other episodes, which I elaborated much more about this topic. Okay, next. What is my responsibility as a single girl living at home? Dear, dear Rabbi Jacobson, thank you so much for your weekly videos. They're always, they're always inspiring and have a lot to learn from. I've been in Shaduchim for years already, for, year, for a few years already, and I'm still living at home with my parents and siblings. I've always helped out a lot around the house ever since I was able to. My younger sisters, who are now in high school, barely have any responsibilities around the house since I was always the one who did everything, and they expect me to continue that way. However, lately I feel a lot of resentment toward helping out at home since I really want my own home, and I'm only living at home because I'm not married yet. What are the responsibilities of a single girl of single girls living at home? And are they the same as teenagers living at home who are less independent? 
I hope you can give me and others in this situation some clarity on the responsibilities we have towards our families at this, at this stage in life. Thank you. Okay. So, again, there are episodes where I talked about some of the responsibilities. So I refer you to episodes 99 and 120, but not quite as phrased in this question. So, I think this is a matter of common sense and practicality. I don't think there's a black and white answer. It's case by case. Um, yes, it would be appropriate that all siblings feel equally responsible. And it should not just be expected of the oldest sibling, whoever's been there for longest, to, to, all, to do all the burdens. The question is, how do you get that happen, to happen? So it could very well be, if, it's a, if you have good communication with your siblings, with your parents, maybe a nice gentle nudge or a gentle gesture that reminds people, instead of carrying it inside and feeling so resentful. And you'd be surprised. Maybe just a matter of just encouraging people. Now, if that all has been tried, and for some reason you feel that you are seen in some way as the servant at home, then obviously you have to look at deeper issues, if that's the case. But I speculate that it's not the case. But since I'm speaking to many different people, it could be for some that's the case and some not. So it's very important to understand the situation before responding. As I said, it, it should be expected, and it's a normal thing, that every family should willingly and lovingly participate in different chores and helping out. And in most healthy families, I would say, I would say all healthy families, that's what happens. There may be other issues, but then we'd have to address them, and that's not the scope of this question. But I have to mention it because often I hear a question, and I realize there's much more going on. Because why would this bother you so much? Why can't you just ask your sisters or brothers or the siblings to help out? So clearly there may be more. Now, as far as your own feelings, Hashem should bless you. She should find a shidduch as soon as possible. But I don't think that you should allow it, the fact that it's taking longer than you would like, to allow it to cause resentments. I mean, that's not the reason you should not be helping. You should always be helping. Whether you're a teenager, whether you're older, as I said, regarding the others, they should also be helping. You should do your part. I don't think like you've finished your quota. Now, obviously, you're going on a date. And you're more independent. You're not at home. You're not there. But if everyone's at a Shabbos table to say, hey, I've helped so many years. Now you do your part. I don't have to do anything. I wouldn't go with that approach. So I think you have to separate your own pain and frustration about your situation with Shaduchim from resenting others in your family. And just... As I said, either encourage them or find some way to get them involved. And I don't think it has to be measured at a certain age. Now my responsibilities are lower. You see very often, married women, married men, come home for a seder or Shabbos meal, and they help out. You could say they're married now, they have their own family, they have their own children. Because it's a decent, normal thing to do. You come, guests come to a table, they also help. So I'm not sure why one has to spill over into the other. That you have pain and you have frustration, I understand fully and I empathize. But I don't think you should let it start affecting your relationship with your family and others. Because then it starts spilling over into ways that you don't want to become. You don't want to become bitter and angry due to your circumstance. And as I said, think good, it will be good. Be positive and get your siblings involved in a kind way, in a loving way. And I, I, would, I can assure you that I'm confident you do it right They'll all help out. That doesn't mean you still won't have your upsetness about your situation, but at least divide and conquer. One thing has been accomplished, 
And then you can focus on finding your shidduch, as I said, my blessing. You should find it here in the month of Adar, when in the Marvin Besimcha, and Besha Teva Matzlachas in a beautiful way, with the least amount of aggravation. Okay. Next question. Intimacy in front of children. Should parents show their affection to each other in front of their children? Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I really enjoy your show. It is an amazing service to the Jewish community at large and provides us with so much knowledge. My question is, I've been exploring what level of physical love a couple should show in front of their children in the privacy of the home. Some Ashpim mentors say it's detrimental for children to see physical contact between the parents, hugging or kissing, for example. Some say it's healthy for children to see this, to know what is normal. I saw one approach in my own home, and I want to know what is the healthiest way to approach this for my future children. Be'ezus Hashem, with God's help. What is the Labavitch Aderich in regard to this? Thank you. So I did speak and touched upon this in episodes 59 and 158. If I recall, I spoke about it actually more extensively, but I don't remember right now, it was a long while ago. So firstly, let me say that 59 and 158 probably has much more on this topic. But regardless, let me say this. This again is from the questions that there are no black and white answers. Let's start with the basics. It is healthy for a family to be loving. Just like you love your children, spouses love each other. Now, does that have to be expressed always in a physical way in front of the children? There's other ways it's expressed. A smile, a gesture. I've heard from people, nightmares, where they say, I grew up in a home, my father never said a nice word to my mother. So first I thought it was sinuous. Then I found that it wasn't so sinuous. There's many ways in Adela refined and, and modest ways where affection can be shown. So it's not a matter of deliberately premeditating and planning, oh, we're going to show affection to our children, in front of our children. It comes naturally. You see a thank you, a gesture, a just the type of, you know, people can pick up children as well when you like somebody and when you appreciate them and you show gratitude. For someone to say, I won't do that because it's not sneezed, it's ridiculous. Because that's completely sneezed. To say thank you to someone, to say it with a smile, to say it even with affection. Should there be physical contact? Now, that could be that can be a discussion. Some could say, in a mild form, sometimes you may see children walk home and they may see their father touch the mother. Obviously, all in the kosher way, in a holy way. To go crazy about it, I wouldn't. generally speaking, kept this more intimacy, more private. But there's also levels of intimacy. There's obviously things that definitely are not appropriate, that belong between husband and wife and between the parents. Even with the closest people, it's not appropriate. Not because you're hiding something, because intimacy is intimacy. Not because it's ugly, not because it's even immodest, because there's certain things that are done in the Holy of Holies in a beautiful way. The question is, how far does that go? So I don't have a black and white answer. I am sure some Hashpim will say, no physical contact at all. But I think it really comes down to what's natural for the parents in a way that is appropriate and modest. And if they have a question, they should ask their mashpia. So as I said, to show a type of love and affection without physical contact is, and, and, and it's coming normally. As I said, you're not planning it. 
It's a normal reaction. Now, sometimes there may be a physical contact in people's home. Do you have to go do a dafka in front of the children? Not necessarily, but sometimes it may happen. So I wouldn't go make it into a whole, uh, a whole uh, crisis and what do we do and what do we do? Children see it and they see the affection and, and at the same time, I think there are borders and boundaries that people should have, even how they dress at home. Even how they dress at home. And I know there's been things written about this, different abonim giving directives. The reason I'm not citing one or the other because I've seen so many different directives, different standards in different communities. Now, unfortunately, there's also the downside that there are many people who are simply repressed emotionally. And by them, the, 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 the distortion of tzniyas and modesty comes to the point of extremes where you literally don't even have the normal emotional reaction you would to someone you care for. That does not necessarily bode well in a family, in a home. So, as I said, there are clear boundaries. There are things that absolutely are not permitted and not should not be done, even if it's a person, the, the immediate family. There are things that are absolutely fine, and then there's the in-between, the things that may be physical or semi, or on the borderline, that we have, you have to determine case by case, and not you have to go flaunt it. But the fact of the matter is that sometimes something happens, and that's not that the end of the world. Um, and I'm sure some people are going to disagree. You know what? Everybody has to do what they understand. I don't know if all this has to be regulated and going to people's homes and telling them exactly what to do. I think we are intelligent people. We have to use our common sense, plus the directives of Tata, what it means to be modest. And as we all know, tzniyas and modesty is not just covering. Tzniyas and modesty is even how you take a shower and how you dress, even in your own privacy, and there's no one around. It's dignity in the eyes of God as I've spoken about this issue of modesty many times. Walk with dignity before God. So think, what is the dignified way to behave in your home? Even if no one's there, especially if your children are around, dignified, uplifting, beautiful, kind, but not necessarily in unhealthy type of inhibitions and fears and insecurities that are also pollutants that sometimes really create the wrong modeling for what love is about and what affection is about. You need to have a combination of both, but in appropriate fashion. That's my take on this. And um, I'd love to hear comments and feedback, so please submit them at MeaningfulLife.com slash my life. And I'll be happy to read different thoughts and so on. If anybody has something directly from the Rebbe on this, I don't, I have not seen or directly that you'd like me to share or you think is appropriate to share, Please share that as well, and I will, please God, um, share it in a future program. Okay. One more question, and then we'll do some follow-up. Well, actually, two more questions of follow-up. Standards in Shaduchim. How high should our standards be in seeking a Shidduch, a match? Is it too much to ask for a girl who davens three times a day and learns chitas? Are there standards that are too high? Shalom of Rach. Is the concept... Well, I just read this. I was just... Okay. Is the concept of a girl davening three times daily, learning chitas, with or without seder mitzvahs, asking for too much? Knowing how important it is for women to stay in tune and have herself a hiskashus impacts the home and the relationship. Thank you. Here again, I don't know if there's a black and white answer. 
I mean, there are things that obviously standards we should all have. As far as commitment to Torah, to Yiddishkeit, to Chassidus, Yiddishamayim, Midas Tevis. Let me just translate. Yiddishamayim means a person who has the yoke of God, the fear of God, awe of God, has good Midas, is a kind person. There are standards we all should expect. There are things that, we, that are completely irrelevant. The Rebbe once wrote to someone who asked, what's more important, a smart, a smart person or midis, a good midis, good, a good personality? And the Rebbe said, for sure, a good personality. And then he added, about money, our sages in general don't speak about. That wasn't the question necessarily, but that's what the Rebbe wrote. So there are things that are just not necessarily standards and maybe our own distortions and our wrong, our, 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 our values in the wrong place. Then there's the in-between. And this would come down to, at the end of the day, that's why we're different people and we need different things. Some people, they want to have a, a woman who's going to daven three times a day and learn Sefer HaMitzvah Sanchitas. If that is really critical and vital for you, I wouldn't tell you no, don't have that. To make it a deal breaker, if a person doesn't have that exactly, but they're fine in so many other levels, obviously you have to keep your mind open. Some people, that's not, they're not makbir on that. They don't really mind if a girl doesn't have it in the context of this particular question. The same thing with boys. So there are things that I think everyone can agree are the right standards. There are things that we all can agree, or at least we should agree, are just not standards altogether. And then there's the areas of what extent, how high, if you'd like to hold out and say, I want the highest possible standard in Frumkeit and Yiddishkeit. You know, I mean, there are people who go on a date and they learn Sikhs together. If they're compatible in that way and they're both enjoying it, great. If one does and the other one seems a little weird, you have to take that into account too. You must you do that. I mean, it's nice, but I think most people probably don't do it and I wouldn't necessarily recommend that you do it. It's nice because who's going to say no? It's a nice thing. But a date should also be getting to know each other and not just hiding behind books. It's not just about book smarts and about that standard. It's good to bring Kedusha into your life, but there's a, that has to be done with a lot of discretion or else it can become more important than the relationship. So it's very vital that there be a human connection, not just a holy one. A human connection that's also holy. And the holiness depends on the people. It's always critical to speak to someone about this. I have seen Shaduchim fall apart because one person decided the other person was not religious enough for them. And it was things that are, the standard was beyond the regular norm. And they were meant for each other, I had no doubt about it. Obviously God knows better than anyone. But it fell apart because of things that should not have fallen apart. Then there are times when the standards are too low. So this is not easy to answer like this. It's case by case. You have to talk to someone and see what that person says. Generally speaking, when it comes to Shaduchim, we try to make the least amount of conditions. There's the key things in personality, Yerushamayim, values you share, kind of home you want to build. Midas Tevis, a good personality, as I said, kind, sensitive, someone you can trust. But to start making more and more conditions even if they, in your mind they're good conditions, conditions, I wouldn't make them conditions. Preferences, fine. You'd like that. And many people grow in, in marriage. I've seen many people during dating, they may have been in one place, 
And years later, you look at them, they're learning more, they're doing more mitzvahs, more commitment. So you have to look at the personality, not just what they're doing at that moment. What direction are they going? What are they aspiring for? So this already goes into the area where I would say, anyone going on a shidduch should not just follow what you're hearing here on my life, because it's applied. Speak to someone. You can use these thoughts and ideas. Let it be a, a springboard for further discussion. And hopefully, a few words I said will help broaden the latitude and broaden the, the spectrum so more shidduchim can actually happen instead of us limiting it and not allowing God's baruchas to manifest. So, like in anything in life, don't be more religious than God. It's enough what the Torah told us what's right and wrong. We don't have to go further. Now, if a person has a particular higher standard, run it by somebody. Make sure it's not unrealistic and make sure that it's not blocking the bracha and the ability to find your proper soulmate. Now, we have, I've been doing the last few weeks, ongoing throughout, sporadically throughout different episodes, davening. How can we daven, begin to daven the way Chassidus expects of us? So let me do another little section on that. And there's much more, there are more questions, but I'm getting through it. In general, I've been speaking about it in episodes 18 through 20, 133, 140, 182, 199 through 201, 203, and the last two episodes, 252 and 253. Uh, maybe 251 as well. So prayer and tefillah is, a, is an integral component in chassidus. And definitely chassidus applied. That's why I will continuously speak about it, not every week, but very often, because it's part of how you actually become a more refined person, a more godly person, and one that lives up to the expectations of what the Tehra chassidus wants of us. So here's one some feedback that came in. Feedback on davening. Thank you so much for addressing the davening questions. Although none of them were mine. I would like to clarify one point. Should meditating on Seva of Kalalman bring one to Yira and Mamala Kalalman to Ava? So let me translate what that means. Seva of means the transcendent dimensions of the divine that are beyond existence. Should that bring one to awe? And Mamala Kalalman, the imminent the manifestation of the divine within existence. In other words, as the divine relates to us gives us life, sustenance, food, and so on. Should that bring to love, to Ava? Or should both concepts evoke both feelings? And should meditation be first from matters that are more supernal in a downward direction to us or from us to Hashem? In other words, from the bottom up, from God down. Is there a place? Is there a place for both? And if so, does the order matter? I have tried davening many times with the meditations in the Rebbe Rashab's Kuntras HaTfilah. He gave out a booklet called Kuntras Hatfila of Prayer, the, a treatise on prayer, and it has been very helpful. Thank you for the succinct yet deep inspiration and guidance, Zaygi Benched. So this is following up something I did discuss. In general, Seva of Kalaman would evoke awe, because it's beyond us. So you see the awe of God, how God, the hafla, as Siddha says, the grandeur or the majesty of the divine. Mamala Kalaman is how God relates to us, blesses us with life. Birchus Hamazan, for example. So you're relating how God is doing something for you that is a close relationship, how He's providing for you. So that's in general. But we all know that Hashem Hu Alekim, 
and Sevev Kalam and Mamalaklan are not two, God forbid, dimensions of God. They're two dimensions, but they're all part of godliness. So there's overlap. In Sevev Kalam, you can have elements that will evoke love, just like when people know each other, even though there are parts that the other person is a mystery beyond you, that still can bring that you love them for that. And the same thing, Mamalakalaman, being that it's part of godliness, and even God at manifest in existence is still a mystery, especially as it relates to God beyond existence, so it evokes all. As far as Mamatlamayal and the same idea. Both are necessary. They're parts in davening that we reach out from our guts, from our guts, from our kishkes, we call to God. And there are times we evoke and try to bring godliness into us from a higher place. In general, tefillah, which is Avedi Shabalev, should be according to where you are at. Sometimes we need more awe, sometimes we need more love, sometimes we need both. So I don't think there's a black and white formula. Every davening is different, and every day is different. So you need to know the principles, and then apply them properly as you go through davening. I think every davening should have a little ava and a little yira, or a lot of ava and a lot of yira. But every person according to their needs and where they're at should be able to apply these ideas. So when you speak it's like more about God from God's perspective. You speak more from our perspective. It's almost like the difference between Seva Klaman and Mamala Klaman in a certain way. Because Seva Klaman is understanding God beyond us. So that's like almost the supernal dimension. And the God that is, relates to us is coming from the bottom up that we can relate to and grow through that. Okay. Let's now do some follow-up. So two follow-ups. One about Megillah reading by women that I discussed last week, which was before Purim. And the second one about Josephus or Yosifon. Let's start with the Megillah reading. So I received a number of uh, letters, a number of emails as well, um, and different comments. Some really appreciated the different perspective and the different elements in Chazal and the Gemara, the different approaches to it. Um, and some pointed out that all these approaches are theories, but it comes down to it's halacha. So I want to just point out something I've said again and again. My life says applied is not psak halacha. For that, you should go to Rav, describe your situation, and let the Rav give you a directive, a psak. If you need more than one Rav, go to more than one Rav. I don't, I'm not here to replace that, God forbid. I'm not here to in any way go tread in that territory. Obviously, there's going to be overlap because when you talk with Hashkofa, which is my, yes, the focus, Chassidus applied. Remember the name of the program, applying Chassidus to our lives. So then you can talk a Gemara, and I'm not interested, I'm not going into the detail of whether it's your Psak Paskening. The fact of the matter is, there are different ways to look at the concept of women reading the Megillah. That was my point was to bring out how the Teda is diverse and the Teda has different ways to look at it, that women were part of the Ness. Psak halacha? There's halachas. Should I have mentioned it? Perhaps. Not that there shouldn't have been any confusion. So I'm mentioning it now. So I'll even actually read what one or two people wrote to me and they said, I'm, I'm translating from the Hebrew, one was in English, one was in Hebrew. You don't pass on halachas according to the shit of Rishenim. Obviously not. And that's why this program is not passing along. You don't make rulings based on different shittas, different opinions in Rishenim or earlier, even in the Talmud. Because it's just, we don't paskin based on that. We paskin based on a psak halachim. In Shulchan Aruch, or the commentaries on the Shulchan Aruch. So this fellow writes, 
and I want to share it with you because I think it's appropriate to know. And perhaps I should have qualified it, but as I said, I wasn't talking halacha. Then Mogan Avram, Tofresh Peites, that's an Chaim, Simon Cotton Vov, explains that a woman should not read the Megillah even for herself. And of course, that includes not reading for other women. That's halacha. The Prima Godim goes even further that even if someone can hear the reading of the Megillah in the public because she's in the women's section, even there, she should listen to the brachas and read the Megillah quietly together with the, whoever's reading the Megillah from a kosher Megillah. And then afterwards, try to, read, try to hear the Megillah again from her husband or from a man at home in order to cover the chshash of the Magan Avram that a woman should not read on her own. Okay, very important. And I want to state again, I was not coming to negate, God forbid, this. I was just speaking the idea of the concept. But not to have any confusion, I appreciate this letter, and therefore I'm reading at least uh, sections of it. Um, what else is relevant here? And bottom line, there's no halacha, which, I mean, I don't remember exactly what I said. I did, I did say because... Rabbi Vadya Yosef does speak about this and has his own approach. Obviously, he was the chief Sephardic rabbi of Israel, not Ashkenazic. So that's why I did mention that there are those that allow the women to read. But that's something that needs to be clarified. I didn't go and research it in all the communities. But this person's writing that you don't find that ever that a woman is given in halacha, not in halacha, not in theory that a woman is given the right to read to other women. Um, what else relevant here? He's referring to that. Listen, there are modern people who are trying to create progressive approaches, whether it's in open orthodoxy or others, and there they're trying to reuse these opinions that say that maybe today women should begin reading for other women or even for men. Now, obviously, if anybody took from what I said a opening for that type of approach, so that's why I'm speaking right now, making clear that's not the approach we follow halacha. That still doesn't mean that those opinions don't exist, but that's not negated to halacha. Psak is a psak halacha, like I just read and discussed. Okay. So, yes, thank you for that, and thank you for the other comments that came on this topic. Let's now go over to Yosifun and Josephus. So here, a few people wrote to me, made a point that Josephus and Yosifan are not the same thing. It was last week's episode, I spoke about whether it's, um, whether we can rely on it, and quoted the Alter Rebbe Shulchan Aruch, and a letter from the Rebbe on the topic. So, just to read one, oh, should I read all? Let's see, okay. In this week's, ep- in your last week's episode of Chesedus Supply 253, you conf- conflated Yosifan and Josephus. Josephus is the English or the Latin word, and Yosifan is the way we use it. Although Yosifun is indeed quoted in many places, including by Rashi and other Rishonim, the works of Josephus, namely the antiquities of the Jews and the war of the Jews, are generally eschewed in halachic literature. They are referred to as Yosifun Yehudim and Yosifun Lereimim, respectively. The works of Josephus, especially antiquities, contains pure apocursus, that's apostasy, as well as disparaging remarks against certain chachamim. Yosifun seems to be a kashered version of Josephus, written at a much later date than is permitted. 
Hatzlach and all you do. And others echoed the similar idea that, that there's two different things. And what Alter Rebbe is referring to is the Yosifun, not Josephus. What's interesting to research, and I didn't do the research, and someone maybe knows information on this, if Yosifun is an extract from Josephus, not a separate book, who did that extracting? And how did it become koshered? If it originates from a book that was not kosher. So that's something to look into. And, uh, and, uh, but the bottom line is, we still have the Alter Rebbe Shulchan Aruch, and find it's a good point to be made. I have here some sources that were given to me. I didn't have a chance to look it up, but I will look it up. And basically, the, what's the person raised? The Alter Rebbe is permitting the reading of Yosef, not Josephus on Shabbos. Possibly, and, and based on this, it could be the case, but it's still interesting to know how one was extracted from the other. Okay, good. With that, let me do the chassidus question, and then the essays for this week. Levushim, garments. If thought is the garment for moichin, for intellect, what is the garment for midas, for emotions? Now we know there are three garments, thought, speech, and action. Only three. Three ways to express your faculties. Faculties, Conscious ones is meichin, intellect, cognitive, and emotions, midas. I'm not really sure the question is asking is thought seems to be the garment for mind. The mind thinks. So he's asking, or, or she's asking, so then what's the garment for emotions? My understanding of Chassidus, and I spoke about this in episode 240, is the three garments, and I believe it says so explicitly, are for intellect and for emotions. You can also think about something you love. You can have love in your heart and it's not expressed in any way because it's just like a faculty. Just like you can have ideas, until it becomes active conscious thought, your feelings too remain a faculty and not, a, not expressed. So thought is thinking about loving, you love someone, you think how much you love your child. Dibur is speaking love, loving words, and action is acting on it. So both mind has thought, speech, and action, and, and emotions have thought, speech, and action. Does it say anywhere that thought in some way connects more to the faculty of meichin? Perhaps. That I've not seen. If someone has any sources for that, please share that with me. However, in general speaking, all three garments are garments of expression of all ten faculties, as the Alter Rebbe says in Tanya. Ten faculties, Eser Kechaz Nefesh, and Gimel Levushim, Shleish Levushim. Like a garment, this thought is expression to yourself, speech to another, and action, creating something from it, or, or writing, or presenting, or producing something as a result as, that expresses that, either moichen or midis. Okay, now, we're still reviewing the essays from 2018, last year. So three essays. One is God's Dream by Akiva Greenbaum, age 40. Ewing, New Jersey, is a shliach. So his essay, life is full of challenges and one can't find endless advice on how to remain healthy psychologically and emotionally. A popular suggestion includes strengthening one's faith and connection to God. The world of recovery, for example, emphasizes greatly, emphasizes greatly the importance of surrendering to a higher power to overcome addiction. When it comes to anxiety and depression, people often preach the importance of believing and trusting in a higher power. This is fine, but as well as we can all testify, living in a God-centric reality seems difficult in our finite, egocentric world. 
However, with a revolutionary perspective of Chabad, Ksidis, living a healthy spiritual lifestyle is easily accessible. In turn, the person will develop a healthy psychological makeup. And goes on this essay to explain how the Chassidus Chabad does that. Very interesting angle. Talks about the God and man, Eneid Malvade and Chelekelekam and Malmamish. And takes it to another dimension, a level, not just that we're turning to God, but it becomes a real viable reality in our lives. So thank you for that. This essay, as the others that I'm going to read, are posted as we speak at MeaningfulLife.com, My Life, um, My Life, uh, My Life, MeaningfulLife.com slash My Life. And they also can be received if you subscribe to our emails. We send updates of all new postings, including these essays. Next essay, Stress and Prayer, Ahava Lichtenstein, age 18, Hanover, Pennsylvania, a homeschool student. Stress is an age-old affliction, Ahava writes. It contributes to emotional disorders such as anxiety, depression, and addiction, as well as health issues such as a weak immune system, cancer, and heart disease. May God protect us. But most of all, stress is not fun. What Hasidism Hasidism brings to the table is prayer, the potential and ability to separate from our troubles and connect with the source of it all, to make decisions with a clear and settled mind and not in confusion and above it all, to take the dirt and grit of life and transform it into something useful and beautiful. And the essay goes on to do exactly that, take stress and learn how to channel and harness it for the good through prayer, primarily through prayer, meditation, as explained in Chabad Chassidus. Very good essay. Uses liturgical prayer, talk therapy, and parallels to that. And uh, well worth reading. Melody, Dveikus, and the good in everything. And then a very good summary and conclusion. So thank you for that. And finally, essay number three. Facing life's challenges with an Aleph. Mushka Rifkin, Age 21, New Orleans, Louisiana. The dark side, she writes. One person struggles to make ends meet, another has health concerns. One individual deals with tough relationships and yet another is grappling with emotional issues. Each one seeks solutions and works to get past the shadow that envelops his life. Unfortunately, circumstances do not, circumstances do not always work out the way we try to maneuver them. The approach of chassidus across the board is to look past the surface and reach the core. We are shown how to dig deeper within the words of the Torah and see and the prayers to discover the powerful underlying messages. This essay focuses on one angle of this Hasidic approach of looking deeper, recognizing that God is the only true existence. All of our issues and concerns are merely a facade of nature that masks God's hand. And goes on to do this very beautifully, powerfully. In step one, recognizing the need for a paradigm shift. Step two, applying God's Oneness to life. Step three, doing my part, then letting go. Step four, employing spiritual techniques. And then practical exercises of learning, recognizing, concentrating, and acknowledging. Very good essay. Excellent essay, I would say. From the top essays of last year's contest. Thank you for that. And with that, we conclude this week's My Life Says Applied, episode 254. And we're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Everyone should have a continuing Marbim Besimcha. Every day continues growing joy. Mylan Bekadish of this month of Adr. 
and leading right into the month of Nisan, the month of Geula. Geula, personal redemption, global redemption. The Geula mitis v'ashlema. Everyone be well, and we will see you next Sunday. Thank you.